This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen. How's it going, Miles? It's going great, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's uh, it's not quite winter anymore, but it's not <laughs> spring yet at all. We've just been living in this limbo. And it's weird because my parents live in Minnesota and they got a whole second big blizzard like we got with uh, the tropical storm that came through. Yeah. And so they have like seven or eight inches on the ground still. And then I'll send them pictures or, or FaceTime, and they're like, how do you not have any snow? Well, we just missed it. We missed that second one. We got the big one, then it all thawed out because temperatures are wild right now. And it's just gross. Yep. And then nothing else. So it's just been wet and dark and weird. And so we're almost guaranteed to have a March-April snow blasting. Yep. Like it's going to come, right? and it's going to come at the worst time when we're all ready to be done. I mean, I'm ready to be done, too. <laughs> Actually, if this was normal, like if we just got really great snow before Christmas and then it all kind of faded away, I would be cool with that because I really only like snow around Christmas time. Don't need it any of the other time. I just would also like there to be sunshine. <laughs> that would help. See, I am all about the snow. Bring it. Give us a foot all winter long and like just revel in it do the winter stuff, but like this is what sucks, is none of the winter stuff, none of the summer stuff, none of the fall or spring stuff, just ugly. Yeah. Then again, you take advantage of the snow, though. You go to Hill 17 and do pond hockey and all that kind of stuff that needs those colder temperatures. Pelt cars with snowballs and all that fun stuff. Right. So we have a couple of things to talk about today. Uh, Let's front load entertainment and then we'll do news after. That'll keep our news listeners through the break. Big E from news. It's not big, big, but like an update. Yes. We talked at length about Ephraim fighting for the very soul of the town, and uh, we have an update on their decision, so we'll get into that. But Ephraim, before we do, soulless or not. Right. But before we jump into that, I want to talk about Door Community Auditorium. Their winter yeah. season is looking pretty cool. There's a show specifically that I have tickets to that I'm really excited about, but we'll kind of go through. We, we put in kind of like a little calendar of what's coming up at DCA in the Pulse this week, so you can pick that up. But what were some of the standout shows for you? I just, you know, I kind of forget that they have all this going on because, you know, COVID really for a couple of years really cramped down on what they could do. And so when this came across our desk, I was like, oh, this is great. Like they're back to like a full slate of winter programming. So when I saw it like Step Africa coming on the main stage and the Door County Talk series is back and actually that starts this weekend, is it? I think. uh, Yeah, I think it is this weekend. So they're starting with uh, former Governor Martin Schreiber is coming up to talk about, you know, not an exciting thing, but an insightful thing, I guess I would say. Yeah, an important thing. The winter yeah. season, they do have some big, really cool entertainment groups coming, but mm-hmm. they also do use this time to do more community engagement and do different types of programming that, like you said, not as much like big spectacle shows, but really insightful or really important programming that people can get involved with. In the winter is also when they can do some of their like education stuff where they have performers come and work with the school because 
school is in session rather than in the summer when they don't have as much of that. You mentioned Step Africa, who I've seen before, and they are really cool. Uh, it is a group of people who do like African-inspired dance and music, and it's a very exciting, high-energy show. So putting it in the winter is challenging. But yeah. like I said, they also have that educational component where they work with the students, or at least mm-hmm. they have in the past. But it's one of those shows where they come out and they're like, I see you all sitting out there. I would rather you were up on your feet and dancing oh, really? with us. Yes. Like they so, bring the audience into it. Yes. They have audience participation. They bring kids up to do stuff and teach them things. But they they would prefer an audience that's up and hooting and hollering and clapping with right. them than just sitting and politely clapping after each <laughs> song, which is a little bit of what you get every once in a while. Yeah. So if you want I, a really cool... The best cool, shows that I've been to at the auditorium are those that like pull the people out of their seat. Because to some degree, because it's like... It's not like a city crowd where, like, everyone is 22 and dancing or everyone is 60. It's like this weird mix of all these right. ages usually at the shows at the auditorium. So it's it presents a bit of a challenge for the performer to go, how do I connect with this audience when it's not homogenous? And the best ones are the ones who can connect with everybody and then pull them in. And right. sometimes it falls totally flat. I saw Mason Jennings once and almost fell asleep. And I like Mason Jennings. And I was like, wow, this guy is just like going through the motions here. And then you see someone like Brandy Carlisle, who from the first note, I, I didn't even know who she was when she played there. The first time she opened her mouth, it was like everyone just jaw dropped and said, wow, this is amazing. And it was from start to finish. And sounds like Step Africa is one of those that might might be that kind of show. Yeah, they are. They're very, very exciting, very energetic. They're really, really cool. My favorite show that I've seen at DC was actually my first year up here. My wife got me a wedding gift, and it was tickets to go see Ben Folds, who is one of oh, my favorite musicians that been great. ever. So cool, just him and his piano, which is exactly how I like him, and it was fantastic. But he's high energy, even though you're like, oh, it's a dude in his piano. He is. He's he's fun. He talks to the audience. He does really interesting stuff. He's the type of person who will play 30 seconds of a song, realize he messed it up, make a big joke and start over kind of thing. Yeah. Like he, those intimate concerts are super, super cool. And I, I love that they were able to get him. He was basically doing a show down in Milwaukee or Madison and it just made sense for him to pop up for one night. Sure. So that's what he did. And it was, it was incredible. If they can ever get Ben Folds back again, such a cool, such a cool musician. They should do a whole season. That's like, they bring back all the best shows of all time. <laughs> there you go. There you yeah, go. Jeff Tweedy, Ben Folds. I mean, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Ray Charles, not going to come back for, I don't know, reasons. I just don't think they could get them back. Right. Uh, I also like how every once in a while they'll bring in a cover group that you might be mistaken to think is the original group. Like they've had Steely Dane there. Oh, yeah. Which is a Steely Dan cover band, which you, you might not know if you just are like, has it always been Steely Dane? It must have been. <laughs> yeah. Have I been mispronouncing it this entire time? Right. One of the other shows that are coming up, I believe in March, is Yamato, which is a taiko drumming group. And I'm super excited about this. I, I, I told you a little bit about this off mic, but... Tell ta- people what taiko drumming is. Yes. It is a type of Japanese drumming uh, with big... Big drums, basically, they look like big barrels, basically, and they come in different sizes. There are huge ones that have really deep resonant sounds, and then there are smaller ones that are more, you know, portable. Sometimes they're strapped to the performer. Sometimes they're on the ground, uh, and you basically have two wooden sticks that you drum with, and that's what it is. Everybody is drumming. There's no other instruments with it. Sometimes there's a backing track if it's that type of song, but it's just a really interesting showcase of rhythmic percussion. 
And I have kind of an interesting connection to taiko drumming because when I went to school at Augsburg College in Minneapolis, one of my professors was married to Rick Shiomi, who learned taiko drumming under the first taiko practitioner to move from Japan to America. So he learned, and most taiko practitioners learned from the very first taiko instructor who came to America, I believe in like the 70s, 60s or 70s. And Rick Shiomi went on to start Theater Moo, which is an Asian American theater company in Minneapolis, and also Moo Taiko, which is his taiko group. <laughs> and I got to see them, and taiko drumming is such a cool, again, energetic, really exciting form of performance. And it, like, if you've ever seen, like, a really a really energetic drummer in a band and you're like, man, I can't believe that they're, they're keeping up that energy for the whole concert. Are there non energetic drummers? Can you be a drummer if you don't have energy? I don't think so. Yeah. I think like all the drummers <laughs> I know are the people who like are constantly shaking their foot when they're sitting still kind of thing. I think it's that type of thing, but imagine that performance across 25 people. Yeah. So it's, it's really cool and I'm super excited about it. So you got those two shows I think there's actually a couple other main stage shows coming up. And this runs kind of through, when we say this, the winter season, it actually extends through March. So what I guess some people would consider spring. We don't have a winter up here, like we said. So, but not this year, like seeing this, maybe I was especially excited just because there is no snow and winter stuff to do outside. So I'm like, all right, something's going to happen here. This is good. <laughs> right. Um, but like the Door County Talk series is like the a morning session where they have different speakers come in and t address topics. People recognize Michael Brecky's name, a, a guy familiar to people up in Door County who now lives in Kansas City, but he's going to come up here to talk about religion in a few weeks. Uh, like I talked about Martin Schreiber, he's talking about his experience as an Alzheimer's caregiver, dealing with his wife for 18 years and the struggles, successes, things like that. And I think there are a lot of people up here who will... I, I think be interested in, in hearing that either going through it themselves or struggling to find care, all these different aspects of, of people dealing with that. So it's this great mix of entertainment and engagement of just making people think <laughs> right. and giving people an outlet to talk. Right. Are you doing oh, and the coffee house concert series? Yeah. Have you been uh, slated to do your Chateau Hutter performance <laughs> for the, the I would not call it a performance, but oh, uh, there's, there's slam poetry in it. Yeah. I, I think you do an acapella song at one point. I think, uh, yeah, it, it may happen one day, but luckily I've put that off for a while. All right. Anything else on, on DCAs coming up? Like we said, there's a rundown of everything that's coming up in the Pulse this week. Mm -hmm. um, you can go on dcauditorium.com to get tickets, that kind of stuff. So if you want to see what they have coming up, and then after this season, they'll be announcing the new season as well. So they <laughs> kind of run into each other a little bit. But if you haven't been to see DCA in a while, I think there's some really worthwhile stuff coming up in the next couple months. And I know I say this a lot on this podcast, but I just think it's so cool that we can live in this tiny little town and have stuff like all those things we just talked about five minutes away. Yeah. Right. It's a pretty unique situation for small rural community. Right. So another thing that is coming up, and I, I really don't know a lot about this, so I'm leaning on you to inform me. I'll, I'll act as audience proxy, but our audience probably knows more about this than I do. <laughs> there is a like a celebration or a remembrance of Jim Benish coming up, correct? Yeah, Jim Benish, the longtime coach of Sturgeon Bay High School, passed away last winter during the basketball season. He passed away of cancer. He's only 56. He had coached for, I think, 30, 32 years total at Sturgeon Bay High School, 27 as the boys' basketball coach. 
a rival of mine when I was coaching in high school and just a hard nosed big competitor. And they're going to do a ceremony on Thursday night at seven o'clock before roughly seven o'clock, because it's between the JV game and the varsity basketball game, which all depends on what time the JV game finishes. So that's tomorrow as we're recording this on Wednesday, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So if you're listening to it on Wednesday, it's tomorrow. If you're listening to it on Thursday, it's tonight. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Don't want someone to get the wrong information there. So Thursday night, roughly seven o'clock, they're going to do a, a little, you know, it won't be a, a super long thing because they got to get the basketball game going, but just another opportunity to recognize him and recognize his induction into the Wisconsin Basketball Coaches Hall of Fame. He was inducted in September. Fortunately, his friends did some legwork so that they could let him know he was going in before he passed away. Mm. So before he died, he did learn that he was going to be inducted, which, you know, I, I coached for 10 years, right? I mean, to think of somebody doing that three times as long, it is, it engulfs you. It, yeah. it, it, and then to only be, what, you 56, is that what you said? Yeah. So that means he started coaching in his early 20s. Yeah. And so, like, that's, I mean, more than half of his life he's dedicated to coaching guys. And before that part, he was a competitor as a kid from the folks I talked to. I mean, I first knew him when I was a player myself at Gibraltar, and we would play Jim Benish's high school teams. And fortunately, I, I played on a team that had some good teammates, so we, we were able to win a couple times against him. And then he had some great teams right after I graduated, one that went 24-0 and before losing in the sectional finals to some great Seymour basketball teams that win three state titles in seven years. Probably his best opportunities to win a state title came at the same time that Seymour was having one of the great runs in the history of the state. So it's kind of bad luck, misfortune on that front. But he had some incredible teams. I wrote an article in this week's Pulse and that we also just put online today in which I talked to some of those players, guys like Scotty Jacobson, and just what Coach Benish meant to them and how he changed the culture there and created an atmosphere. It was like, you work your butt off, you're going to play. So if you were a, a freshman or a sophomore and you were just a really hard worker and more talented, you were going to play varsity basketball. It didn't matter the, the age thing. And that was, maybe that's more common now, especially as schools get smaller and you just need the bodies. But in the 90s, it was a big deal for an underclassman to play big minutes on the varsity squad. So Scotty just talked about that belief that he instilled in them. And that's why when, when they, I mean, they played hard. When you played a Benish team, especially those peak teams, you knew you were in for a dogfight the whole night. And so I played against his teams. I later coached against his teams. And he had some teams that were really had no business beating the team I had. He was just a better coach than me. I mean, just flat out. He, he We'd have a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter, and he would pull some random defense or scheme out of a hat or maybe I don't know for all I knew he made it up on the bench just to throw me off and I wasn't experienced enough to have an adjustment and a team we'd be up 10 and next thing I know we're down six and we're blowing a game and I had this great team and I you know as a as a coach of when you have the better team you're just like I'm there were there were distinct moments where I was like I'm letting down these players which is a horrible feeling as a coach but a testament to how good of a coach Jim was and so when we did beat him as a coach, like that was, you know, we, my teams never went to state. My, my teams never won conference, but beating Sturgeon Bay was a huge goal of mine every year, because if we could beat a Jim Benish team, that meant a lot, you know, which is a huge testament to him and what he meant to that school. Right. So he had the really creative plays where he'd be like, all right, run up and kiss them. That'll throw them <laughs> off. And then, no, I think that that's great that somebody who touched the lives of so many people, I mean, 
36 years, that's what, 25 generations of high school students yeah, that I mean, come through? If you, you know, that's there hundreds, hundreds of players, you know, and man, any coach, if you coach even one year, you're going to have some players who love you, some players who hate you. But like, that's a lot of players that you impact. And tell you what, like, <laughs> whether you whether you liked your coach or not, if you played for Jim Benish, you definitely learned how to work your butt off. You definitely learned how to test your limits. So anybody who played for him experienced that. He also coached softball for many years. He coached girls basketball for a few years. And in talking to his friends and his family, they, his, basketball was his favorite sport. But his favorite times were coaching softball because that was when he got to coach his daughter, Haley. And she told stories about, you know, his, I was like, what's he like at home if his, you know, he's, I, kn- I knew him as a, an opponent and being really competitive there, but what was he like as a dad? And she's like, well, he was pretty competitive there too. He would, if we were on vacation and we were at a hotel, he'd pull me out into the hotel parking, not pull me out. He'd be like, let's go out in the hotel parking lot and play catch. And she loved it. And so she loved having a dad who would always find a way to practice and, and play with her. And it sounds like they had just an incredible relationship and he took great pride in, in her and her competitiveness as, as well. He definitely rubbed off. And, you know, being a coach's family, I don't know how people do it with children because now I have kids. I'm like, where do you find the time? You know, I guess, but we always do. But they said, you know, his wife, Amy, said, I knew what I married into when I married Jim. I, I knew what I was getting into. So we were along for the ride. It was a family commitment to put in that time and put in that effort. And even at the end... Jim was battling cancer for the last two years of his life, and he coached his last, up until he literally could not physically make it to the gym anymore. He was coaching, wearing a mask, trying to keep his distance from people. This isn't during the heart of COVID, and finding the energy to to do everything he could to, as uh, one of his players from that final year told me, like, you know, he just did it to be with us, and that is, like, such, to watch him do that was such a lesson for those players at the end just to be like, this guy cares so much, he just wants to be here. Wow. So, you know, it was, it was fun to write about it, both to think back to some of that, those competitive moments with, with Jim, but also to see the impact that somebody can make and to always remember it. And, you know, Thursday night, Surgeon Bay will get a nice final moment to, to remember, you know, they'll be incredibly fortunate if they ever have somebody coach 30 years again, you know. You think of that commitment, that's going to be pretty rare nowadays. So, All right, let's take a break, and then when we come back, we are going to... Talk about the battle for the soul of Ephraim. <laughs> the battle of Ephraim. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. Okay, we are back. So just to recap from... I think we talked about this last week. Basically, there is a, a big liquor store that wants to move into Ephraim, right in the heart of town, and they're going to bring all sorts of scallywags with them. So Ephraim had to fight <laughs> to try to keep them out. No, that's not what's going on, but it, it almost feels like that is the battle that is going on from 
you know, the magnitude of, of worry that is, is going out around this. So basically, Pearl Wine Cottage, I believe, wanted to get a Class A liquor license. Correct. Which allows them to sell liquor and wine that you can take off premises, basically. So Correct. you could go to the Pearl and you could do a tasting and then you could buy a bottle. One small point of clarification, technically, you cannot have like the wine bar and the retail. It's not the same business. So it would technically be next door in the gallery space was what they were. They would have the, the retail shop there and the wine bar next door. Uh, it's a, a small technicality in like the Wisconsin statute as well. Got it. So you could go do a tasting and then walk through a door and then take that bottle of home with correct. Okay, so uh, they wanted to do that, and Ephraim was kind of debating on whether or not they would allow for two liquor licenses to come in, but there was some concerns, and I'll let you kind of briefly recap the concerns, and then we'll talk about what the decision was. Yeah, I'll try to do this without being too laborious, but like you said, they, they want that Class A liquor license. I should clarify, does not allow for a tavern. This is not something that would allow something comparable to, say, Husby's right. to be opened in Ephraim. What's the class that allows you to serve like that. What's higher than A? And I just always refer here referred to as just like liquor license. Sure. <laughs> yeah, right, but there to, is a different classification um, for it. So generally the concern Ephraim has had is that if we allow for this type of license, how can we limit it in the in the words of the trustees, how do we control it? Both the Ken Nelson, Cindy Nelson, Tim Nelson, all in their deliberation said, I'm just really concerned on how we can control it. I don't know what it was, but like <laughs> it's uh, essentially, I think what they were getting at is how do we not let it change what Ephraim is? Right. And like if, if you give the Pearl the license, they are pretty clear on what they are and what they do. But if there's another one out there, who's to stop a liquor store from moving into Ephraim, right? That is the exact language and framework they use. They talk about how do we stop somebody from opening you know, as, as Tim Nelson said, like, if you all want a liquor store in Ephraim, fine, but I don't, I don't want a liquor store in Ephraim, you know, and when he says it, and when other people have mentioned this, I think they're picturing, you know, your urban bars on the window. I don't know, just that, dangerous is the wrong word, but like just unsightly liquor store for Ephraim, I guess. Right. And which is a weird thing to be afraid of in Wisconsin, because you can buy liquor at Target. Whereas, like, if Ephraim was in Minnesota, it, I would see the concern because, like, in Minnesota, we had liquor stores that you could only buy from at a certain time of day, mm -hmm. and they were closed on Sundays, I guess because God doesn't like it when you drink or something like that. But, like, in Wisconsin, any gas station you can go and buy liquor in. So it just seems like a weird a weird slippery slope fear to have. Yeah, it, it's, it's a little weird. I mean... Honestly, people, uh, the, the deliberations were pretty entertaining because one of the other concerns is how do we, I just don't feel confident that we could stop a large scale packaged goods store from moving in. I mean, that flies in the face of logic. Like you don't have to because the marketplace will determine that for you. Like there's just not the population for one of the stores they mentioned is Binnie's, which Binnie's for those unfamiliar is very popular around Chicago. It is a Roughly, it's if you had a Woodman's, but it was all beer, wine, and liquor. Like massive selection dedicated to spirits, right? That is something they they referenced before. Is how do we stop a Binnie's from coming in here? And Binnie's ain't coming in. <laughs> like if there's not a Binnie's in Sister Bay or Sturgeon Bay, it's not gonna pop up any from. But in any case, that's not to make the case for them to pass it. 
as people have asked me about this, like any community has a right to govern themselves how they see fit. And if they don't think that fits, that's great. But the groundwork that they were having the conversation based on was kind of off-putting to some degree, I guess. I mean, the reality is what they're debating is whether or not they want to allow a convenience store that would offer those products or like a daughters and company located in the cupola house or a top shelf or a firefly. These are all like small scale wine, beer, spirit shops, right? That's what the groundwork, that's what they're talking about. Yet they're, most of the conversation was about something much different. So I think most of the impressions were something much different. They also, you know, I, I don't like it in general when people in door County coming from someone from here, like, the outsiders versus insiders language that is used a lot. You know, we're all outsiders at one point. <laughs> like there's a whole bunch of people. If we could go back in time, 150 years ago, that would have a much bigger problem with our set of outsiders, but it's just a weird framework to have those arguments on, on a municipal level. Um, and they also distributed a survey last year in which 70% of respondents said they were in favor of this, which uh, a note on that survey, they separated that survey and they had people note whether they were registered voters or not. And they also had it on there whether or not they were property owners or not, which I thought it was weird. I mean, I get it that you're trying to say like, are you a taxpayer or not? But that also, if you're going to frame, like you're doing that because you want to have an argument based on whether or not you own property. Right. So I am somebody who lived up here and busted my butt and owned multiple businesses for like 40 years, but never owned a home until five years ago. So is that to say that like all the people who rent up here don't get to have, like, they don't matter as much to you. Like that's a weird framing for me for, for like a village survey. That's to me and so many of my friends pretty insulting to say like, I mean, that just goes back to the beginning of time, right? Like you have rights if you're a property owner, you don't, if you don't own property. Right. I don't know. Well, the I, time, I, I hate that. There's, there's a timeline thing to consider here too, because Ephraim stopped being a dry town in 2016. And so I, I think that the people who are most against this would be people who are familiar with Ephraim when it was a dry town, people who probably lived in Ephraim for decades while it was dry and less the people who have started living there recently. And if you correlate that to the housing market, then you have people who bought in an Ephraim, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, not people who have been able to buy in there recently. So there, there is kind of a, like, it, it's, it's not really looking at the last six years of what Ephraim is now. It, it's looking back on, like, still fighting for what Ephraim was 10 years ago. Yeah, there is a bit of that, but also I'm like, it's not different. They're not two different Ephraims, right? Right. The ability to buy and sell alcohol does not define Ephraim. I mean, I know it's like a, a fun trivia thing to say, like, it was the last dry town, all those things. But did that define Ephraim? Like, there's tons of people who visit Ephraim who go out to dinner who never knew whether or not they had alcohol or not and found it, you know, sometimes off-putting if they went to a restaurant and they then they couldn't get a beer or something like that. This is not to, like advocate for it. It's just like a weird framing of like, Ephraim's got so many great things. To me, I think of it as historical, right? That's the number one thing I think of with Ephraim, not whether or not it was ever dry or not. That's just a fun right. trivia parlor game because it's not like they stop people from bringing beer from Sister Bay into their home. <laughs> it's right. never been dry. Right. I, I mean, when Anderson Pond was dedicated to land trust. I heard old timers talking about how they used to make gin back there and, and just for home consumption. It's, been a running joke underneath everything for, for years and years and years. So it's a weird 
So all you're doing is, for the sake of this trivia thing, denying yourself some of the business opportunities that other places have. Again, that, that was, right. that's my opinion on that. But like, again, I, I think it's totally fine for them to vote however they want to govern it. It's just the populace seems to be asking for something different. So all that being said, what was the decision? No, we didn't say that. No, they met and they decided on, on what they were going to do. Gosh, and we framed that all wrong. Well, this was all just part of the recap, right? <laughs> this was all part of just, we're doing last week's podcast again for people who didn't listen. And now we need to talk about what they decided. So they all of this is well, to Well, ultimately, say, the board of trustees voted no. Thank by goodness. By a three to two margin. Ephraim is um, saved. Cindy Nelson and Mike McCutcheon voted in favor of the ordinance. Tim Nelson, Ken Nelson, and Matt Meacham voted against. You know, it's not to say that it doesn't come up again years down the road or maybe a couple of years down the road. I mean, the referendums that their, their first referendum to allow the sale of alcohol was in 1934. The next one was 1992. You know, who knows? Someone could always get petitions and put something on a ballot, but that's where it stands. You said referendums. Does it have to go to a public vote or? It doesn't have to, okay. but that's how they done it in the past with the, when they finally allowed beer and wine for restaurant consumption. So why not do it in this case? They determined last year, I think it was April, when they said, like, we can decide this at the board level. We shouldn't have to go out to the voters to make this decision. Like, we should be responsible enough to do that, which I, I would agree with. Like, just take responsibility and make your vote. And to their credit, they did. Sure. So that's, uh, that's where Ephraim stands now. I will say there was one comment that it kind of, like, made a good case for not approving this. And it was basically some, I think it was Niles Weborg, actually, who said, you know, when people buy into this town, they knew it was dry. So whether you bought in and opened a restaurant or a hotel or you wanted to open a convenience store, like that was the rules that you bought into. Why'd you buy into it if you didn't want to do that? Like you knew what it, you were getting into. And that's true. You know, like if you buy a property and it's, and all the property around you is zoned commercial, it's pretty hard to turn around and say, I don't want that business next to me. Right. So you either buy the property next to you or you let whatever is zoned to be built there could be built. Same thing in Ephraim. Like that's what you bought into. Like can't complain about it, but they followed all the right processes. It was a community decision. It's not one person or the other. So, right. I know that we had a lot of fun with this discussion, <laughs> but um, I don't want people in Ephraim to be mad at me for, for joking about it. It is just kind of a, an interesting thing as an outsider. It's interesting. And you know what? It is amusing. Like sometimes these town board meetings, it is very interesting to sit and listen to how they, come to decisions and the things they discuss and the concerns that people have. And a lot of times I listen to them and I start out by thinking that's crazy or that's dumb. By the end, I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, so there is, I come around a lot of these things sometimes and yeah. I understand. I think that's how most people listening to our podcast feel. Probably dumb. I they probably feel dumb. dumber by the end of this. And then by the end, usually around the 35 minute mark, people are like, oh, it all makes sense. It, probably not. they probably just go like, well, how did I waste my time with those guys? No, that's fair. They're like, I listened for 35 minutes when I could have read in two minutes on the website. <laughs> uh, this is not good job security for me to be saying. <laughs> well, if you listen this far, I hope you enjoyed listening to us and I hope you come back and listen to us again next week. Miles, thank you for, for chatting with me and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.